Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best panels pertaining to RPG design and publishing. This has been made possible by Double Exposure and their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Now to the show! Episode 41, Designing Games for Kids, recorded at Metatopia 2013, presented by Amanda Valentine, Tim Rodriguez, and Krista White. Amanda Valentine, and I am an RPG editor and a mom, and um, here's where I look all self-serving. I also recently had a kids game come out called Little Wizards, aimed at ages 6 to 10 roughly to teach primarily role-playing. It has simple mechanics, and the whole idea is cooperative storytelling, really focusing on that. So I have lots of opinions. We'll let those come out later. Uh, I'm Krista White. Um, I am a co-founder of Galileo Games. Um, I don't do much game design um, yet, but I've done a little bit. Um, and that's it. You've also raised kids. Uh, yeah. I have two, two teenagers. We've <laughs> turned into a, nice little Not kids. a very committed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't really think of them as kids anymore. No, they're not really the kids anymore. They, they are the fruit of my loins, but they're not children anymore, so... But they have turned into really nice geeks. I like your kids yeah. a lot. Yeah, they're pretty great geeks. Uh, I'm Tim Rodriguez. Uh, I am a game designer, among other things. I don't have any kids. <laughs> you were glaring at me. <laughs> You're so, a game designer, so I'm, I make I'm up for designer. your I make up for your no kidness, and you make up for my there we not go. game yeah. designer. So yeah, you have two kids, right? You yeah. share one. That's, right. Okay. <laughs> you get Chris. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, I, I can work with this. <laughs> um, uh, my games have been very popular with kids for uh, reasons which I think we'll probably go into. Popular um, with my kids. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're popular with. So, uh, just for context, my kids are 11 and 13 in a few days. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the perspective I'm coming from. Uh, we are recently coming out of the kid game phase and into playing grown-up games, but on a level that works for kids, which is its own thing. Um, they can handle the mechanics. It doesn't mean that they game like adults, though. And so there's that, too. Um, I personally could go in a million different directions for the full hour, which might bore you completely, so maybe we can get take questions and have that guide the conversation. I'm assuming you're here for some specific reason, so if we can help yeah. out with that. So, I will sort of what start... Games, let people know what games you've yeah. developed. So, um, the one that is out and available for purchase is called Ghost Pirates, which is tactical two-player action that is meant to uh, sort of simulate cinematic pirate fights. You know, where the ship goes back and forth, and all of a sudden, like, you have Han Solo, like, yelling and chasing down stormtroopers, and then he's like, oh crap, there's a whole lot of stormtroopers, and then they start chasing him, and then it goes back and forth, and it's sort of very swingy and hilarious right there. Um, it's a card game. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a, I call it a board game, because okay. it's, it's not really, you don't play it like a card game. Uh, it is a game that uses cards, but it's played as a table game. Um, I think part of what kids like about that game is that it uses the word poop. <laughs> which Sold. Is, yeah. <laughs> Adults like it, too, for that reason. Yeah. Um, you know, referring to the poop deck of a ship, which is a thing. And it's right. a, it's a, it validates a way to say poop, which right. is always awesome. Um, and you roll lots of dice, which, you know, people find fun. Um I think, and this is one of my personal philosophies, is that treating kids like kids, like like children, is will engender behavior like children. And if you treat them like people, you will get a much more grown-up reaction. This is 
my feeling on things. Mm -hmm. I have not had kids myself. At but the same I'm, time, yeah, I want to say I I think you're right. I think I think kids rise to expectations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, but you also can't expect them at the age of six to role right. play like an adult or right. to play a card game like an adult. Right. That's why there are different kinds of games like Candyland versus Monopoly. It, you have stages of stages of development. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so you have to, when you're designing games, you have to be aware of what the kids are capable of. And you can make games that are flexible enough to serve a number of different audiences. But you have to kind of do that intentionally. Yeah. yeah. One, one of the really interesting things that I heard recently was that in order to make successful kids' shows, you have to make them for the adults, um, which I think is a really important telling thing because, you know, if the adult cannot bear to watch Barney because it's incessant singing, the kid is not going to enjoy it either because they're going to sort of, one, they're going to like reflect your reaction as, as the parent just sort of naturally like kids imitate like that is how people learn you know I didn't do game design out of nowhere I started imitating people and right. <laughs> have imitation games which are terrible but <laughs> how do you explain success the success of Barney huh because it is pretty terrible Oh, yeah. I can't. Oh, all right. <laughs> okay, I mean if you really want to go there I, I can go there it's a great babysitter um and I mean, there are th there were adults who could handle it. I don't know who they were, but uh, yeah. I was I was actually I didn't have a problem with it, honestly. Mm. I mean, I understand why people don't like it, but uh -huh. it really didn't bug me. For me, constant repetitiveness is the problem, <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't matter whether or not it's Justice League or Barney. It doesn't matter. On the seventy fifth viewing, anything I'm, is <laughs> it, I'm done. Yeah. yeah so. Uh, but one of my professors, I have a degree in education, one of my professors would say, the problem with Barney is that anything that chases adults from the room is bad for kids. Mm. And that's true of games, too. And in my case, that was Candyland and Shoots and Ladders. The kids would pull out the games and I'd be like, oh, crap, not again. Please don't make me play this game. And if that's the time I'm spending with my children, that's not quality time for any of us. Right. And so something like Kids of Catan, which is still pretty much luck-based. It's teaching, taking turns, and paying attention, and all the same basic skills. But I didn't hate it. It was tactilely nice. I felt like, you know, this is sort of a nice game. And, and it wasn't interminable. You didn't have these, like, towards the end, boom, and everybody's back at the beginning. And I'm like, oh no, please don't make me play this game again. Um, and so I enjoyed playing that with them, even though uh, we wouldn't have, like, had it out when we were all adults around the table. We wouldn't pull out Kids of Catan. But I didn't mind playing that with my children. And so for that reason, it was a much better game, from my perspective, than Candyland and Shoots and Ladders. I have two kids. Um, in fact, my daughter is 22, and, and she's presenting the game at the con also. I'm very, very thrilled. But uh, I watched Barney with her, and, and one of the things that you said I'm, I'm very surprised about, kids love repetition. So they're going to pull out the games that they like, mm -hmm. and as a parent, you play it with them because this is what they like to do. So you're saying, you know, it, it draws, it, you know, makes parents go away, but this is what kids do. They like repetition. They but don't know enough to not like repetition. I think part of the key is finding something that parents won't go insane repeating. Oh and my so. God, have you ever been in a car ride with kids? Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, makes you not. <laughs> 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 you said you were going to talk a little bit about the Piaget stages of development. Right. I think this might actually be a good time to bring that in because right. uh, the whole thing about when kids are okay with that level of repetition versus when they're not, like that does switch over at a certain point, relatively early in kids' right. development. Right. Mm -hmm. like, like five or six, six or seven is like the third stage of Piaget's uh, stages of development, and that's when they start getting reasoning ability, they start understanding abstract concepts. Before that age, they're still very tactile, still very concrete, still very self-centered. It's hard for them to um, think about other people having a different perspective. So that six, seven age is when they stop watching the same show all over again, although my 13-year-old excuse me, 16-year-old daughter, oh my god, my 16-year-old daughter still will watch things, um, 
so it just, you know, I don't, maybe she's stuck. Who knows? <laughs> or she just enjoyed it. So, I mean, actually, it's probably useful to talk about what would be sort of some dividing lines, not necessarily in age, but maybe in terms of the yeah, cognitive, cognitive ability and maybe even attached to uh, um, in mechanics that mm-hmm. happens you know, for kids. So, I mean, Random, you know, randomness, randomness or turn taking. I mean, you know, it's right. like when you look at Candyland, it's just, it's simply, you know, turn taking and counting, right? Or what, what, yeah. It's not even counting, yeah. it's color right. matching. Right. Color right. It's yeah. like yeah. you yeah. draw yeah. a card and move to that next color. Yeah. yeah. That's good. So, but then, uh, uh, but that's certainly for the youngest age right. of, of, a, of, a, of a game. Right, right, which would be, you know, over, which would be probably two or three years old. They can, well, even that's a little early. So four or five is the Candyland stage where it's very concrete, very tactile, and it can't be too complicated. So starting at about six or seven is when you start, not only they start to be able, there's a reason they start teaching Math, you know, math at that point, serious math at that point. That's because they're capable; their brains are capable of understanding the abstract concepts of mathematics, right? So, six or seven, you start getting into beginning to understand abstract concepts, being able to um, start to reason out logical steps for um, your actions, right? Like, if I do this then this, this, and this can happen, which means you can have more uh, complicated rule sets mm-hmm. involved. Um, that's also when more social skills develop, when you think, oh, you know, me doing this move might make it unfun for somebody else. So that starts to come in at that age, too. And then around 12, 13, you start to get into the really higher level abstract um, you know, lo- long, very complicated sequences of cause and effect, which is where kids generally start to come into their own for tabletop RPGs because they can run through scenarios in their head s- starting at about that stage and are able to think, well, you know, if I stab this guy now, he won't be able to, you know, do this thing for me later. So, you know... It- I think those are helpful. It's helpful to think about ages because if you're designing kids for games, parents are going to want to know, is this game appropriate for my kid? And they might not be thinking about Piaget's stages, but and so you have to think about content as well as you know the the complexity of the rules. And I think your point is really good, Amanda. That um, you know, I I just did stuff with my kids because I mean there was this game called Pretty Pretty Princess oh, which, was, which was not not the most complicated game in the no. world it was on the level of Candyland but you know I played it repeatedly but then you know after a while I was like no you know let's, let's, let's do something else. let's do something else so if you can if you can get something in there for the, the adults that will keep it interesting, mm-hmm. but still be. I think at six or seven, you're at a stage where, you know, the rules can be a little more complicated, and it becomes more interesting um, for the adults as well. Before that, I don't know. I mean, not you're the one with the degree in education. Why am I talking about <laughs> PhD? Because it's been a long time since I've PhD. <laughs> uh, but but I think I think part of it is. Okay, so I, I am going to continue to just bash on Candyland. I'm sorry. Um, Candyland is terrible. <laughs> well, it's from an older time, too, when people weren't really thinking. So you're not going to hurt anyone's feelings when you bash on Candyland. <laughs> yeah. um, but, like, I mean, our kids had all kinds of games, starting very, very young. And I didn't need a complex game I was going to play on my own in order to enjoy it with them. But having, like, nice pieces. They were, they had a, there was a balance game that had, like... Uh, Ladybugs that you had to put on a tree where the leaves might fall, and no, this was not an exciting game. But at least it was pretty and kind of interesting, and so it engaged me in a way that little cardboard squares with colors on them just really, really didn't. Mm. Um, and so, and I, if I don't know, it just it felt more fun to play a game like that, even though it wasn't really engaging me in the same way. 
And a lot of the games that we enjoy as adults, um, Carcassonne is a really good one. You just remove some of the more complex rules, and suddenly you have a fantastic kids' game. Or you make it cooperative. I really love and the suddenly just basic you have Carcassonne game. I think I think the basic Carcassonne game, where you're matching things mm-hmm. and like being able to build out yep. like these abstract structures. I think that's fantastic, and I think that's one of the things that kids do just naturally all the time. Just like when when they're you know at a at a level where they can start start seeing where to fill yes. in the blanks and learning you know implicit structure like that that is something that well and that's something yeah that ki- that kids can get out of Carcassonne at those younger ages six and seven and that but then the strategizing is for the older kids like you take right? farmers out. Right. And you remove a huge chunk of strategy, and suddenly you have a fantastic matching game for a younger kid. And part of what we did was we... That's my husband. <laughs> that's why I keep pointing at him. Um, part of what we did was we, um, we would play it cooperatively. Like, we're all going to try to build the biggest city together. And so then you're not necessarily competing against each other, but they're still learning how to match these things. They're learning the basics of the game and so on. And having, having games that have that kind of flexibility that can grow with kids mm-hmm. is... I think works out very well because it, it then is still engaging the parents too and it can get more complex as the kids can handle stuff that's more well, complex. And the, and the parents can then pull it out when the kids aren't around and play the more complicated version. And that's the thing about being a designer. Be very intentional about having those different levels because you're also going to have people um, who are coming to your game who aren't designers um, who don't know any of this stuff that we're talking about. All they're going to know is, is it fun for their kid? Can their kid handle the rules? And is it fun for them too? Like, so if you, when you're writing your rules, if you want to have all of these levels, say, to play with younger kids, take out the... You know, take out the farmers. I don't. Is that even in car, the Carcassonne rules? If it's not, it should be. It's on the iOS version. Oh, good. Is it awesome? Yeah. So, you know, doing those things intentionally to make it scalable is really important, and you're going to hit a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Well, because here's the other thing about kids' games: kids go through phases alarmingly quickly, and so you only need like two games when they're three, and you only need about two games when they're six. And then you move on to adult games. And so you'll notice that was like four kids' games total in a lifetime. You know, I, I mean, yes, of course we had more games than that. But they move out of phases really quickly. And if your game doesn't grow with them, then, you know, if, if the parents didn't get it at exactly the right phase, and if, if they don't want then buy it for their friends' kids, you're kind of done. You know, you have these really narrow windows unless you have something... That I've has got, some complexity to I've it. I've got no need to play Sorry anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but but Pirateer, which functions on similar uh, number mechanics, is awesome and actually won a Mensa Select Mind Games uh, thing. So, like, it's it's not math that's made something too complicated or too simple. Like, you know, you're counting and moving around your ships around spaces on a board. It's super super smart um, but you're you know rolling dice and instead of uh, flipping a card <laughs> so, but like that's that's a great example of like mm-hmm. a really really scalable game that's super super smart but also super super simple so like it doesn't even have to be a complex game to scale like that. right how does it scale up uh, the basically people get smarter about the numbers the so it's a grid, um, and your goal is to take your pirate ship, move to the island in the center, take the coin, and move it back. And so if somebody else gets to the ship there, you have to go and sink their ship. So the way you move around is you roll two dice, and you can uh, move those t- any, any sort of combination of the directions. You can move straight on one die. You can then turn and move perpendicular on the other die. You can move straight on both dies. You can move backwards and then forwards, which is sort of where a lot of that comes in. Um, And then there's also two trade wind stripes that go diagonally, one sort of down each side of the board. So then you can, if you land on the trade winds, you can uh, move diagonally along those.
things. So it's just a matter of sort of pattern recognition and uh, you know number manipulation, just off of a pair of dice and a grid. So, they, so that game doesn't even scale up necessarily by it its rules, but you, the user, <laughs> yeah, the, it, it, the it's, kid it scales it. up by the user. Yeah, like mm-hmm. you know, a kid doesn't need to sort of have an intuitive grasp of you know if I move backwards and then forwards, I can move one space. Mm-hmm. You know, back three plus two, and I'm and I move one. Um, you know, if they're move rolling dice and happily moving a pirate ship around the board. That's the same pieces, and everybody has fun. <laughs> a friend of mine who has little kids, actually, she says something really interesting, which is, I love this game because I can make it close without cheating. So by just making poor decisions, not optimal decisions, she could have a competitive game with her kids instead of stomping them or having to actively cheat in order to keep the game competitive. I think that's a superb way to yeah. look at it. <laughs> Not having to like subtly break rules right. in order to maintain a because if they catch you doing that, oh, oh. <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, uh, and when then when they start catching you making non-optimal decisions, though, well, then then they get to feel super smart, right, exactly, and they can point out you should have done this. Then you know, okay, next time I don't have to no. scale back so much. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, do you have any advice for how to deal with? Uh, a wide range of children, in other words, an age range of children. So you've got one child that's five or six, and the other one's eight, and the other one's perhaps ten or twelve. Any advice on how to cages? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try that. The oldest one can pick locks. So do you? The little one can sneak between the bars. Do you mean playing with them that yes. age, or designing for that age? Either. Uh, designing for to accommodate all of that is very hard. The younger the younger you're starting, the harder it is to accommodate. Yeah. Um, but certainly part of both. Actually, I have a thought on that. Uh-huh. Games with very simple base mechanics and then exception-based rules where maybe there's, a, I don't know, a, a, you're, you have a car race game and uh, there's very basic mechanics and somebody has one car that is, the little, 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 little kid gets the car that's very simple, very simple rules. And somebody else has a car that has more options. But, but not substantially more powerful options, just more. Mm-hmm. And then the grown-up has the one with a whole ton of different things they can do, or I don't know. It, oh, like playing Mar- yeah. like playing Mario Kart, where yeah. you can do it on like when I play, the car does most of the stuff for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you get to the point where you know you're manually you know, you're using a more challenging car, and you're you know yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to again friends who have young kids, um, they were starting to play D and D with their older one and the other two are not ready yet, so they had one kid rolling dice and the other one running off to get Lego minifigs to, like, okay, I need a monster. Go get me a monster. And they run off and bring in a monster to show up on the mat. Um, and the kids really enjoyed being involved in that way and I think felt like they were playing, but they were only being given stuff. That they right, so, I, yeah, like, I think part of, part of that is, I, you know, since it was a lot more recent for me that I was pretty young, um, I remember having tons of fun just like being imaginative with things and it didn't matter what I was doing like mm-hmm. if I got to go and like watch a screensaver and pretend it was a casino game and bet on it and like <laughs> you know like I'm watching a screensaver and playing with some play money that's what I was doing like mechanically there's there's nothing there <laughs> My but like first, that my works. first D&D game was playing uh, the familiar of my older cousin's magic user. That's a yes. Good, that's another good way. Yeah. To handle stuff. Which I suppose dates me too, but whatever. <laughs> so, is there a difference between kids' games and family games? And I mean, I guess there is, but I mean, is it the question of again, kind of getting back to do the parents actually get sick of actually playing the game? Um, like you know. No one would ever say that Candyland is a family, family game. game. But right. of course, you know, mom and dad will play along with Only it. because they have to. Because they have to. <laughs> so is that really the distinction is the parents will play because they have to versus the parents would play because they would want to? I think family games in general tend to be maybe precocious 10 and up. Uh, they rarely 
explicitly accommodate an eight-year-old? Maybe apples. Yeah, we have a we have a game that's based on phrases, and mm-hmm. the, the judging happens kind of in an apples to apples mode, you know, each round. And um, there there are three type criteria all, every time there's a judgment, and we explicitly made one of them just quantitative. So one could be um, you know where where one would be sounds like a rock band, or what would be. The, there would always be one that would say the most letters or the least letters. There's something where, you know, it didn't. They didn't have to have any core knowledge to to uh, the winning points. Mm-hmm. And that can help. I mean, even apples to apples, having played it with younger kids, they pull something like, "I have no idea what this is." Yeah. The Beatles. <laughs> My kid knows the Beatles. Oh, yeah, I knew the Beatles too. I would put on the LP of. Sergeant Pepper all the time. <laughs> but there were a whole lot of things that, you know, anyone 16 and older probably at least has heard of at some point. But, you know, you're looking at the 7 and 8-year-olds and you're like, I got nothing. At which point you have, I mean, at which point you hack the game, which is not a big deal. You add in a rule about being able to pull a new card or whatever. Right. Um, this is why Dix is a really superb game because it's all artwork and lets people sort of interpret the, the artwork at their own knowledge and vocabulary level. Um, for those B-I-X-I-T. that don't know Dixit, or is there anybody that doesn't know Dixit? Dixit is like apples to apples in a certain way, but it's all art pictures, and they're all sort of weird, bizarre, very, very widely interpretable pieces of art, yeah. um, which are then all laid up next to laid. Uh, next to each other face up and everybody secretly votes on which card they think the person choosing the person whose turn it is what their phrase matches to which card so everybody plays a card face up so everybody's one involved Um, everybody secretly votes on who they think played or came up with the phrase for the turn Um, and then if it's too easy you don't get points. Even if it's too hard, you don't get points. And if somebody voted for yours, you get points. So there's a wide array of ways to score. Dixit, Dixit is a spectacular game. It won Spiel des Jahres. What age group is that one? I would play it with anybody. I would play it by the rules with, I don't know. I would angle even younger. Honestly, I, I, I probably would do. I just yeah. Yeah, it depends yeah. on the kid. Yeah. It all depends on the kid. It depends on all of this. You know, you can talk about age ranges and what kids are ready for and what they're not. But ultimately, it depends on the kid. Some seven-year-olds are gonna, you know, be gangbusters at stuff like that and be, you know, developing proto, you know, strategizing skills. You just can't tell. I was yeah. I was reading yeah. classical books at like seven, and my brother didn't read until he was 10 and drastically different same household same everything but yeah but then just like different different people yeah that's going to be a choice for the family knowing (laughs) what's going to work i think what's great about dixon is that so much of it is playing the other players too it's like knowing them so it's it's a thing where a family group who you know can actually uh Take advantage. Of that. I mean, like your kids know what you like. Mom always like, picks mom, blue cards. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like they, they can pick that up fairly quickly and uh, and actually use it strategically. You know, there's a dinosaur on this yeah. one. That one's Tim's. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. yeah. There's a question in the back. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any kids myself, but I have two, two five-year-old nieces, and uh, I still look ambulant. So. <laughs> but one of the reasons I do is because I mean, there's no real skill involved. It's, it's highly luck-based, and they can still beat me at it. Uh, but you, you mentioned Catan uh, earlier, and are you in, in favor of adult games creating a s- separate version rather than you know scaling yourself back when it comes to you know trying to let the child have a chance? Are you in favor of these adult games creating a edition just for children? Uh, it's kind of like a stepping stone to those more adult games? It depends on how well the game is done. Uh, Kids of Catan was one that we really liked partially because it was a gorgeous game. It's, you know, the kind you're going to hang on to to play with your grandkids. Um, 
they did Catan Junior, which I'd never actually played, but to me seemed like it filled us a, a, a gap we didn't actually need to be filled. So, you know, we just kind of skipped that one. So I think it really depends. I mean, there's there's something about being able to share a game with kids that you know you love the adult version of, and you're hoping that they're eventually, you know, it's brand management, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are advantages to that as long as the game is good. I think part of what I'd say has to do with is what are the production choices you make mm-hmm. in terms of making that game. You know, if, if you're going to play a game with young kids repeatedly, ain't no way you're using cards. Because <laughs> those cards will get destroyed. Um, but, you know, big wooden blocky pieces, sure, you can play that forever. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want anything too small that somebody's going to choke on. Um, but there's, so there's like, there's a lot of choices in terms of that, but, you know. Um, I have a practical thing to bring up on that at some point. Uh, safety testing you don't have to do safety testing on paper, at least not to the same degree you do massive safety testing on plastic and wood and all of that kind of stuff things. Mm -hmm. Um, there are are sneaky ways around that which is 13 plus right, which means you're not doing a kids game anymore which means you're not doing a kids game (laughs) Um, and and I think not doing a kids game uh, like this is this is largely my approach to it. Not doing a kids game is absolutely the way I go, um, and say you can play Ghost Pirates with people younger than thirteen, and they absolutely get it. I got I've gotten my butt handed to me on a number of occasions by the same kid at like Dexcon two years in a row, <laughs> where I'm playing like one of the most pain in the butt pirates to beat, and he's playing one of like the stock ones out of the box and. He destroys me. Um, I think he's got like magical number grasp that I totally don't have, so I go and overextend myself, and he's like, <laughs> crush you. <laughs> but if your point is to make a kid's game, you're going to need to take all the safety stuff into account, and I think that's part Absolutely of why true. you end up with kid's games that are made on crap cardstock. I know they're not going to hold up. At which point, hopefully, you buy another copy or something, which right, I guess right. works in your benefit if you're the seller, but not so great if you're the one who's buying it. I think... Uh, sorry, go ahead. I designed two children's card games designed for ages 4 through 10. Had them on laminated card stock, mm. and they held up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Laminating them would be... Yeah. One of I, I told the printer I wanted to hold up, and he did it on you know, laminated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Uno, Uno is... Yeah. yeah, maybe it's just tearing through your cards, Tim. What's oh yeah, on? no, I'm I'm super destructive on everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, I Candyland, which has nothing holding it together, is I keep bashing on that. But I mean, the, the cards get bent, and the little yeah. cardboard people fall over, right. and um, Uno played too hard, eventually falls apart too. I've seen it happen. <laughs> sure, but, it's, but it's cheap enough that you go ahead and buy right. it. Right, right. I mean, we went through with our kids three decks of Uno. Yeah. You know, like, these are related to construction. Uh, oh, mine's not related to construction, so you go first. Oh, mine isn't. Oh, it's, okay, mine's not. So either. I want to pivot to RPGs for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one thing that I've had some interesting discussions with people about is the idea that on a certain level, uh, little kids actually have better ability to play pretend than adults. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, like they can simultaneously assume the role of the hero and the villain without like the cognitive dissonance that introduces into games with adults. So I'm wondering if you've ever experienced friction when you've been trying to teach role-playing to kids, not necessarily with teaching the mechanics, but just with introducing the idea. Like, this is a game where we play pretend, oh, but there are rules. Like, do they ever, like, how do they, how do you sell a little kid on RPGs, I guess is what I'm asking. Say, let's play pretend. Okay. But I need rules because I'm a grown-up. So here are the rules. That's how, so, Right? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's part awesome. Of, uh, well, Little Wizards is aimed at age of 6 to 10. Yeah. And uh, the mechanics are kept very simple. I'll get my own little thing here. Because it's not about mechanics. If you want to teach kids how to handle mechanics, then you downplay the story and focus on the mechanics. You make a game where the mechanics are the focus. I wanted to really focus on role-playing. And they can handle either. You know, I mean, kids can handle some pretty complex stuff if that's sort of the point of the game. But I want to focus really on the role-playing aspect of it, so the mechanics themselves are very simple. But 
I have watched a lot of kids playing pretend where one kid is dominant and controls the entire story. And part of what an RPG lets you do is, no, there are guidelines here. There are some structures. Yes, you can do all kinds of stuff, but you aren't allowed to ruin the fun for everybody else. That's the main thing. Everybody's having fun together. And teaching them how to cooperatively tell stories. And that's what the mechanics are for. That's what the setting rules are for, is to keep them focused on one thing. Um, And I have gotten some pushback from that from some of the kids that I've played with but generally uh, they eventually come around like, oh, okay, now I see what you're doing. It's mostly that it's sort of foreign to them to have those kinds of rules set out. Right. But once they start to grasp it, they're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Uh, So how do you play test your games when you come up with a a new game for a group of kids? Do you have to have kids or kidnap them? I get LARPers to (laughs) pretend they're six to ten. I see. (laughs) (laughs) I have... I have pretty deep. Yeah, I've I've never play tested with. I've never play tested a game for kids with kids. I've play tested my games with uh, kids, um, and you know sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, depends on the kid. Um, I did play test. I made my children sit through several sessions of my first attempts at GMing while also playtesting the game. Luckily, they were very forgiving. <laughs> Can I answer that also? Yeah. I have two children's card games. One of them is called Pass the Grog, or it's for the Holiday Forum. I went to my local synagogue, and I said, Can I borrow some of the kindergartners? And they did. They brought them into a room, and, and we played it. They, that was It's designed four through ten, so that was a four to five age group. Um, I took the mechanics from Plastic Robber and made it more mass market. I developed Christmas cards. That's the name of the, the game. So I went to the local church, and I knew nobody there. But I walked into the, the principal, and I said, can I borrow some of your kids, and I'll give you a couple for free. She said, wonderful. And she brought in four kids from each of the classes mm-hmm. into this room, and, and they play tested. That's a great idea. Yeah. Somebody in the last, we just did a play test, and somebody suggested bringing the game to an after-school program. Mm-hmm. We've been desperate to have something to entertain the game. I did that, too. That's awesome. So, um, I, I guess, to me, it seems apparent that like your thematic choice might be more of an issue than a lot of things. I mean, obviously, you know, let's say, you know, if, if the it doesn't really matter what age group you're looking for. If they're not interested in the theme, then you know, obviously, they wouldn't be interested in the game. Whereas, I, I think the difference in adults is you have four out of five people who are very interested in a theme, and you have one straggler. They're probably more able to or inclined to grin and bear it. So and if you, you have Eurogamers, they don't care about the theme at all. Right. right. <laughs> <Sing>. <laughs> but, but I think you can, you can kind of, uh, you can accommodate, you know, that, that fifth person out of, out of the, the group might end up really enjoying themselves. They might be willing to try something because they're kind of open-minded. I mean, so I guess, do you, do you agree that theme is probably more important, or do you have any, any advice for It is for me, definitely. I mean, and it can't appeal to everybody in any way, ever. But. And I would say the same thing I would say about purchasing art, which is don't try and make a theme you're not interested in because you're going to end up making a game that's boring for everybody. Everybody <laughs> loses when you're picking a theme that you don't like because you're not interested enough in it to really wrestle with um, making it a good game. I'm as a super theme junkie. Uh, I, I I totally agree. Like, don't make a theme that you don't want to play. Um, that said, when you're sort of working within the confines of like as a designer pitching to a publisher, if you're not going to try and maintain exclusive control over that, that is a thing that you may not have control over, and that is sort of a tricky balance meme to walk where where a publisher might say pirates are hot, this is now a pirate game, but you're like, this was a game about spaceships and exploration now it's about pirates in the Caribbean exploring islands and end of of story so 
Yeah. I think another important thing to remember is while kids may have some say, they still don't have the money. And so you have to have a theme that isn't going to chase parents away. Mm-hmm. So you might think, oh, sure, six-year-olds really into blood. They yeah. are. It's Murder, fantastic. Death, kill, junior. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they might think it's that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that game is awesome. Yeah. It's like the but most parents are probably not going to do that, and schools are definitely not going to do that. So you have to accommodate kids and adults at the same time as far as that's concerned. Well, and then there's the there's the issue of designing games for specific populations. You can design games for Christian players right. who that is they want to stay within that particular theme and if that's a theme that you are interested in, go for it because you're going to have a definitive audience for it and marketers will know who to target when they're yep. doing that, right? But and it's not. It doesn't mean that it won't be um, attractive to other members outside of that group. But you can do that as well. It's an option right. for you um, if there's a particular um, particular you know group interest group that you want to target. But libertarians. I mean, take your. <laughs> uh, earlier, you were talking about Barney chasing. You know, yeah. the adults have room. Uh, well, fine. You know, nieces and nephews and whatnot that I have uh, are really into shows like SpongeBob and movies like Shrek, which have that uh, over their head type, a uh, little bit of adult humor, adult elements in that that they're not getting, but you know, it's a little treat for the adults. Are there any games that you've experienced that uh, are designed to kind of have that same appeal? Some kind of um, maybe adult things that go over their head or that they don't quite understand, but they are still able to play. Uh, Munchkin kind of works on that level for us. I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a Munchkin's broad Munchkin's a really audience. good example. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think, I think Dixit can, although it's not explicitly built that way. Because it's based on what you say. So Dixit, you can play with, like, allusions to, like, you know, French existentialism. Like, that is a totally <laughs> right. valid way to play Dixit. Sartre says what? Yeah. <laughs> I am alone. <laughs> it's like the, the one character. Uh, I think a lot of the party games end up being like that. Yeah. It really depends on the audience you have. Like there are some that I've played with a, a mixed age, and I'm like, I really want to play that with my friends. We're out a bottle of wine. That would be a much different game. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think games like that have a lot of appeal when there's like you also just from a kids game point of view, you reach a stage where you have to take those things away again until they're mature enough. They start getting enough of those jokes, but not necessarily being ready to handle them. So in a game where that's like part of it, that will end up probably with a somewhat limited show. There will be a time when the parents are playing that and like, holy crap. Yeah, Cards Against Humanity is okay for four to six, but then six to... <laughs> Actually, no! 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 And never, ever play it with strangers. No. Ever. Oh, I've never ever actually played it. Or only play it with strangers. <laughs> 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 Under assumed name, play this game. <laughs> uh, something I did, talking a little bit about targeted groups and so on, something I've heard people talking about that I'm so not prepared to take on in any way, is that there are a lot of educational games out there being designed by educators who are not game designers. And they are making really bad games. <laughs> but because they are explicitly educational, they're getting played in the schools and stuff like that. And it would be lovely to start seeing those two groups come together. Game designers explicitly working with educators to teach things that need to be there. I mean, like I said, with Little Wizards, it was important to me to do storytelling and therefore the mechanics are very simple and so that's part of what needs to happen in an educational game I think it needs to ideally be fun but also target something specific and not get distracted by all this other stuff that could be part of that and I, I, I would guess that this is going to boom at some point so especially some of you younger designers who might be looking at that I, I think there's going to be a boom here at some point Yes, because they will get pay. Grants. They will actually, and they. This is this is a market that will pay. Yeah, yep. They're starting to do this in New York. There, are, I think, two schools now, and I forget exactly what the school, uh, the school is called, like Adventure School or whatever. Where the, every teacher has a game designer. 
who like wow. writes right. games for their wow. classes wow. to help them teach their their things. And the games like they're still not like I, I went on an interview there. I wasn't called back sadly, but um, <laughs> they, they you know the games were not stellar like the ones we play tested, but also a lot of them are designed by the kids as part uh-huh. of the thing. Like right. you design a game to help your classmates memorize like the Roman emperors. And so, you know, that's cool. But that actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask about how you feel about uh, the use of games as an educational tool. Because even though I'm an educator, I've actually struggled, as a math educator, that I've actually struggled to really use games in class in meaningful ways. Either the games suck or, like, they have too much fun and I can't, like, get them to think about math. <laughs> Look at the math. My kids end up doing a lot of stuff on math websites. And some of them are so the games, uh, yeah, or the the sites. I guess they aren't so much. Those ones aren't so much games, but but then there's this one. Oh, I'm not going to remember what it's called, but it has a whole bunch of like flash games on it. Math playground. No, it's okay. not it. Um, and to me, it doesn't explicitly look like math until I think about it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I see the patterns, and I see all the logical thinking and putting things into place. Our kids play that for fun. You know, they don't do that for homework. They go onto this site and they'll play these math-based games because they think they're fun. Um, but are they connecting it? See, that's always yeah, the, that's the catch, right? Like, that's what I think I hear you saying, Matt, is that this is fun. I have no idea it has anything to do with math. And maybe when I'm 33, I'll think back on the game and go, wait a minute, right? But it's not helping the kid now, right? Like, I don't know if your kids are putting that together or not. I think it's teaching them problem solving and patterned thinking, which right. which they might not be aware that it's helping them, but it's still helping them. Um, but when but when what you have to do is teach to a test or whatever, then you're probably not getting the results that are going to up test scores. Yeah, I mean, I work with high schoolers, so that's also part of it. Like, it's not that it's easier to design a game to teach like plus and minus than it is to teach a game that's like quadratic formula. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, trajectory games, like, you know, uh, uh, Angry Birds. Angry Birds, yeah. Right. You said grants. Them. You can get a grant for creating an educational game? I'm sure you can, absolutely. Actually, my friend Lorraine Hopping uh, does that. Yeah. 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 Uh, I would look at um, the National Science Foundation, the um, Department of Education. Math Museum in New York, maybe. Okay. NYU has a game design Yeah. Okay. Yeah. website, I think, is hoppingfun.com. And it's, it's great, and she's super nice. She helps people get grants? Uh, I think she's mostly trying to get, get grants, grants for herself. Yeah, yeah. but, but yeah. I think I think she'd be a good resource because she's yeah. uh, super nice and like right. if you know if that's something you want to try and do, right. like I think she'd be happy to answer questions. Uh you might I mean I am just spitballing, but the Mellon Foundation, they cast their net pretty wide. So that's another potential source. But you're, then you're going to have to have like a bibliography, right? So be warned. If you're going to apply for grant money, you're going to have to do a literature search. So I just tried to create one for this convention um, on the Underground Railroad, mm-hmm. and I must have 10 books at home right yeah, now. Yeah. It. it just didn't come together. Right, right. You know, but education. It's a really good idea. Yeah, it just don't steal it. It just didn't come together. Yeah. But um, gosh, if I could get a grant, then I could spend a little more time. Right, right. Absolutely. All right, well, there's about five minutes left. Anybody else have any questions? Is there anything about graphics that we should keep in mind uh, for a, say, a tabletop one? Don't do it yourself. <laughs> You're not a designer. I'm not a designer. <laughs> like, get a pro- seriously spend the money for a professional. The look is also going to determine the age, regardless of the age that you put on the box. Yeah. So, if it looks too childish, then and your age group is actually like nine and ten, they won't want to play it. Yeah. Um, so, where, but where do you, where do you, how do you know that you are uh, really looking at something, a design that's going to, going to be. 
current, not just you know, kind of what was done ten years ago. Or That's you're, really you're really hitting the mark of what kids were like. I'd look at book covers. That's really smart. <laughs> oh, that's so smart. I love how impressed Tim is by the panel he's on. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm up here with smart, great, smart man. people. This has, like, happened all day. It's great. I just go to Barnes & Noble and look at the books, maybe watch what books the kids are pulling off the shelves. Um, because I I have a book review site for tweens. Um, well, for people picking books for tweens. And so I've talked about book covers with my kids a few times, and some of the book covers that they've replaced things with, they're like, oh, I don't like that at all. So, yeah, that's the one that's out there right now, but they really preferred this one over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so just because it's out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good choice, but looking at what the trends seem to be will give you a sense of at least what other people think is it going to appeal to kids, which is going to become a trigger for the adults. Mm-hmm. You know, if this game looks like the books you're buying for your kids you're going to feel like, okay, this it's the same age group. And that's another reason to get a professional designer yep. because, I mean, even with book covers, like, books that are being marketed to women have different styles of cover than books that are being marketed to men. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, there are people who are doing million-dollar research on this kind of thing. And statistics. Yeah. yeah. And lots, lots of, of statistics. statistics. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. And even if you want to fight against that, people are still unconsciously like responding to it without right. even being yeah. aware of it. Put a dog on it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, There's no dog in this book. I don't care. It'll yeah. sell yeah. like 30% more. Uh, uh, <laughs> to boys. I think it was that. Harry that, that dressed in needs a to, cowboy to hat. Oh. Right. <laughs> Oh, it was like the romance one when I stuck the dog on the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. It's the romance it like, book. It was like a really bad Photoshop dog, oh, it's, too. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It doesn't matter. Why do 30% we more sales. <laughs> because it's fascinating. Come on, man. All right. Any other awesome. questions before we go? Thank you. This is 